0: You. If you are a visitor here this morning, you don't realize that things have been quite different uh, this morning. Um, but we are glad that you're here. And our hope, or my hope, is, is that what you find here uh, are, are real people. Well, obviously we're real, but hopefully what you see is authentic people who love a very real God and, uh, and who love each other uh, very much. If you are a regular attender of this church, then you are very aware that things have been a little bit different uh, this morning. And, you know, we've made a a few changes, and and they're they're not radical changes, I would say. But they are nevertheless changes this morning, and sometimes changes make us uncomfortable, don't they? I want to read a section to you. That I found on our church website. It's under our values. On the website, it says this This church exists to glorify God. We believe that we are made solely to be in a personal relationship with Him and to recognize Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We strive to bring glory to God through singing praying together, hearing and studying his word, loving him, and loving one another. Amen. That is what we are here for. This church exists to glorify God. That's our purpose. That's why you came here this morning, hopefully. Wouldn't it be a shame... Wouldn't it be a complete shame if we were to gather here on a Sunday morning and we were to sing some songs and we were to pray, have moments of silence, we were to hear the teaching of God's word from the Bible, and none of it, none of it brought glory to God. Wouldn't that just be a shame? Is that possible? Is it possible that we could do all of those things and none of it bring glory to God? The answer is yes. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, or if you'd just like to read along, I've put it, put it up on the screen here. You can read along with me. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15 Hear the word of the Lord You rulers of Sodom listen to the law of our God you people of Gomorrah The multitude of your sacrifices what are they to me says the Lord I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Ouch. Is it possible to bring offerings to God and have him not be glorified? The answer is yes, it is. Lest you be confused, God is talking to the nation of Israel in this passage. He opens by calling them the, the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah. That was an insult. That was not a compliment The people of Israel would know very well who the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were. God destroyed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. It was an insult. And he's fed up. He's talking to the nation of Israel, and he is absolutely fed up with their religious activity. He's tired of their offerings. He wants nothing to do with their evil assemblies. He tells them that he's not even going to listen... To their prayers. God was not glorified in their activities. He was not glorified in their worship. This morning, we're going to talk about the worship that God seeks. The worship that God seeks. Because at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters? It's It's not the worship that I desire. It's not the worship that I want to bring it's the worship that God seeks that should have our attention a few moments ago Bethany read a passage for us from the book of John chapter 4 verses 19 to 24 and before we jump into that passage I want to go ahead and do just a really quick summary of the first 18 verses of that chapter Jesus is traveling and he's left the town of Judea and he's on his way to Galilee. Now, up on the screen there, you should see a map. And at the bottom of that map, you'll see the area of Judea. Uh, it's circled for you. And then at the top of the map, you'll see the area of Galilee. Now, right in between them, halfway in the middle, right in the middle of those two areas, is this area called Samaria. Now, in total, for Jesus to leave uh, Judea and travel up to Galilee... The total journey is about 70 miles, uh, depending on where you are headed. By the way, that's a long walk, wouldn't you say? And he didn't make this walk just once or twice in his life. He made a lot of journeys. Jesus walked a long way on foot. I complain that I have to walk to my house, which is right next to the fire station. Now, Jesus is going to meet this Samaritan woman in Samaria... Uh, in a town called Sychar, okay? And that's going to be up on the map there. I just put a little star there so you can see. It's about halfway in the journey, so he's, got, he's traveled a good 30-plus miles at this point. And he stops at what would be Jacob's Well, and he has this meeting with this woman, okay? Now, if you look at that map, it would appear that the most direct route from Judea to Galilee is through Samaria, right? That would be the most direct route. It's a straight line. From Judea to Galilee. But what you need to know is that that is not the common route, necessarily, that a Jew would take to travel to Galilee. Jews and Samaritans don't really like each other. And they have a long history of not liking each other. And consequently, if a Jew was going to travel to Galilee, or from Galilee to, to Judea... They would actually do everything within their power to avoid contact with Samaritans. In fact, if a Jew bumped into a Samaritan, they would be considered unholy as they're going to make sacrifices for having contact with a Samaritan. They didn't like Samaritans, and, and the feelings were quite mutual. So anyway, Jews would actually take a route that looked more like this. They would travel one of these two options. They would either head west and go around the Mediterranean and follow the coastline up to Galilee... Or they would cut across the Jordan River and travel north, and then cut back across up near the Sea of Galilee. They would go out of their way. They would add many, many miles to a journey. Now you're thinking, well, in a car, what do you do, right? But this is walking. They added a lot of miles to their journey just to avoid having to travel through Samaria. I'm going to talk a little bit more later about why there's so much disdain between these two people groups. I'll talk about that more later. But for now, just know this. That Jesus, when he goes through Samaria and has this encounter with this woman, there are so many barriers that are being crossed right here. There were political barriers, social barriers, religious barriers. And Jesus is not there on accident. This is not an accident that Jesus bumps into the Samaritan woman in Samaria. He's there on purpose. And we don't have enough time this morning to look at the entire dialogue of verses 1 through 18. But in a nutshell, Jesus is telling this woman that he can provide her with living water. So that she would never thirst again. Now, He's talking to her in spiritual terms. But she doesn't really understand what he's talking about. And she thinks this idea of never thirsting again sounds pretty good. So in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. This is a good deal for her, right? You can give me water and I don't have to keep coming out to this well every day. That's awesome. I want some of that. And Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back. Uh, And she said, "I, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite True. Jesus is having this conversation with her, and he's talking to her about spiritual things, and she's not really getting it. She's not really understanding where he's going. But then Jesus exposes what would be a very painful past, probably, for this woman, something that would probably cause her to be disliked, probably, in her community. And he points out that even now, she's still living in sin. And interestingly enough... Without any trace of denial. She doesn't deny it. She doesn't say, whoa, whoa, or make excuses. She knows that what he has said is true. And so she looks at Jesus and she says, verse 19. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. I mean, this woman, she realizes that she is now talking to somebody who speaks for God. Later in this, in this chapter, in verse 25, she's going to make the connection that Jesus might actually be the Messiah. Even the Samaritans knew, because they held to the first five books of the Bible, they knew that there was some hope of a Messiah who would come in the likeness of, of Moses. And so she's standing before Jesus, and her sins are now laid bare. And she says, I, I know that you are a prophet. You speak for God. And so she says to him, in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's standing there in Sychar, and right behind her is the mountain called Gerizim. It's right behind her. And that's where the Samaritans worshipped. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, at first glance you might think that she is trying to avoid the subject at hand. You might look at this and say, aha, she's trying to change the subject because Jesus has just exposed her sin and this is uncomfortable. Let's change the subject. A lot of people read this text and that's exactly what they think. But I don't agree. I don't agree. I believe that she is asking a very pertinent question here. She says to Jesus, where do I go to worship? She said, yeah, I, I get it. Okay, I get it. I'm a sinful woman. That's obvious. You know my past. It's very clear. Not hiding that. So what do I do about it? Where do I go to worship God? Where do I go to make sacrifices for my sin? Because in those times, you wouldn't just you know, sit in your home and say, God, please forgive me. We have that luxury, don't we? We can pray to God and ask for forgiveness from anywhere because the the temple veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross. Amen? They didn't have that luxury. So she says, where do I go to make sacrifices for my sin? Where do I go to worship? This is a very pertinent question. She's not not dodging anything here. Now let me pause for a second because I said at the beginning I was going to cover a little bit of history in order for us to more fully comprehend the the cultural context of this encounter, and to better understand the reason for her question. If you turn back the clock about 750 years, that's a long time, by the way, 750 years. But from the time where Jesus is having this encounter, if you turn the clock back about 750 years before this encounter, uh, about the time 722 B.C., 722 B.C. At this time, if you look up at the map here, you're going to see two areas, one in green and one in purple. The green area is the area of the kingdom of Israel. Okay? That's the northern kingdom of Israel. Then you've got the southern kingdom of Israel called the kingdom of Judea. Both of these kingdoms were, were made up of, of Jews, Israelites. Okay, They lived there. But they're divided. You've got the ten tribes in the north, and you've got two tribes in the south. They have their own kings. They have their own sort of rules for how things are going to run. And sometimes the northern and southern kingdom, they get along when it's expedient, when it's necessary, maybe to protect one another or, or, or for our own selfish reasons. They get along. But a lot of the time they don't. And they're divided. That's where we stand. The, the kingdom was divided. If you turn back in your history books and look through the Bible, you'll see that, that the kingdom was divided after the reign of David and Solomon. Things went south after that. okay? And they, and they were divided. Now, in the year 722 B.C., that green area gets invaded. The kingdom of Israel gets invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians come into that land and they they take hostage, they, they, they steal the people of Israel, and they take them out of the land as prisoners. Then what they do is now you've got this empty land, this, this civilized land, there's all kinds of, of, of structure there, infrastructures built. They then repopulate that whole green area with other people that they had captured and people from all these other places who worshipped many other gods. So down in the purple area in Judea, you still have these Israelites worshiping God. Kind of. And then in the northern kingdom now, in this green area, you've got a mixed people group with a very mixed worship um, of, of the God of Israel along with all of their other gods. Very mixed worship, very mixed people group. And the people of that area came to be called the Samaritans, okay? So the green area is now the Samaritans, and the purple area are still the Israelites. Now, they don't really get along for obvious reasons. They have very different ideas on what worship is. They have very different ideas about who God is. It's a very, there's no love between these two groups, okay? Now, about 130 years later after that, I hope I'm not boring you with the history lesson here, um, I usually am bored, so if you are, don't worry. Um, but I just find this to be incredibly fascinating because it really does set up the context for this encounter with this woman. 130 years later after this, now for 130 years you've got these Samaritans up here, you've got the Israelites down here, the southern kingdom, the purple area, gets invaded. Only this time it's not the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they destroy this southern area, and they destroy the temple, and, and they haul off the, the, the southern kingdom, the, the Judaites, they haul them away into captivity. Now they're in captivity for about 70 years. At the end of that time, they are allowed to come back to their land. In the green area, you still got the Samaritans, but in the southern area, you've got the Israelites coming back and one of the things that they want to do when they come back is to rebuild the temple. This is important to them. This is the place where we worship God. We're going to rebuild this temple. And you can read about this stuff in Nehemiah and Ezra. Um, you can read about it in the Second Kings. They are on a mission to come back and rebuild the temple. Well, the Samaritans, though one could argue it wasn't a very authentic offer... The Samaritans in the north said, hey, well, we want to help. We'll help you rebuild your temple. But the Israelites said, no. No, we don't want you and your mixed worship. You guys worship all kinds of gods. You're not going to have your hands in the building of a temple for our God. Makes sense? They don't want that. And so they said, no. Well, <clears throat> Samaritans aren't too excited about this. They kind of insulted a little bit. And so if you read in Ezra, uh, Ezra Maya, that's a good one. See how I combine those? Ezra and Nehemiah, <laughs> you read in those two books, you can see how they rejected the offer. And, and the Samaritans are upset about it. And so they try to stop the rebuilding of this temple. Well, they were unsuccessful. They weren't successful in stopping the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was rebuilt. And so the people in Samaria say, you know what? You have your temple in Jerusalem. We'll build our own. We'll build our own temple. And so they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. They built a temple to worship God on Mount Gerizim. So, the Samaritans worshipped God on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped God in Jerusalem. All right, that's the history. Did you hang with me? You awake? Do I need to get you up and do jumping jacks to wake you up? Okay, good. Back to the text in John chapter 4. This Samaritan woman says, okay, I'm a sinner. I get it. Where do I go to worship God? Where do I go to make sacrifices? Our fathers worshiped right here on Mount Gerizim. She is standing next to Mount Gerizim. She points up. This is where we were told to worship God. It's kind of like Mormons today would say, where do you worship God? In the temple. Where? Salt Lake City, right? Okay, she's there. That's the context she's grown up in. She says, this is where I've been told to worship God. But you Jews say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. I get it. You're a prophet. You speak for God. So tell me the truth. Where do we go to worship? Do you get the question now? She's not dodging anything. This is a very pertinent question. And I'm glad she asked. Because Jesus' answer reveals so much about the worship that God seeks. Jesus declared, verse 21, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship which you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The first thing that Jesus reveals about the worship that God seeks is this the worship that God seeks cannot be limited to a specific location. The worship God seeks cannot be limited to To a specific location. Believe me woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father. Neither on this mountain. Nor in Jerusalem. You see like so many of us. She was confused. About worship. It's easy to get confused. About worship. That's why Matt Redman had to take the break. From worshiping the Lord through music in their church. Because it's easy to get confused about worship. About what worship is all about. Do we struggle with this? Do we have certain places that are for worship? Sure we do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a place that's set aside for worship. But what happens when those places become the only place where we can worship? What happens if if this place right here becomes the only place where you're like, that's where I go to worship. That's where I encounter God. I'll tell you one thing that happens. If you come in here on a Sunday and we change everything up, and you're like, ah, how am I going to worship today? They messed everything up. Well, my hope, my prayer is that you've been worshiping all week. your worship isn't contingent on what happens in this place on Sunday morning. My hope is that you worship before you got here, you'll worship while you're here, and you'll worship when you leave. Listen, you can worship God anywhere, including here. In Acts chapter 16, amazing story, we're told that Paul and Silas, have been stripped, they've been beaten, they've been locked up in the inner cell of the prison. And in verse 25, we read that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) You can worship anywhere. Or how about, what, how, about what, how about what the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. He says, am I only a God that's nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill the heavens and earth, declares the Lord? You can worship God Anywhere. Anywhere. True worship is not limited to a specific location. But let me also say this. True worship is not limited to a specific activity either. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Worship is not a praise song. Worship is not a hymn. Worship is not a prayer. Worship is not reading your Bible. Worship is not putting money in an offering plate. It's not spending time with the poor and the needy. None of those things are worship. Unless they are done by a worshiper. None of those things are worship unless they are done by a worshiper. We are so quick. We are so ready to compartmentalize things, aren't we? We want to have a a checklist for worship. Worship. Go to church. Sing some songs. Listen to a servant. Give some money. Spend time with the needy. Check. Worship is done. Right? We want to have a checklist. We want to say, I worshipped. Check. We're good. Come back in a week. Right, That's not worship, folks. That's not what worship is. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul said this. He said, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul says, you want to worship, die to yourself. Become a living sacrifice. What's a sacrifice? Something that dies. But this is a living sacrifice. So you're alive. Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Right? Become a living sacrifice to the Lord. That is your worship. The worship that God seeks, it cannot be limited to a specific location And number two, it must be sincere. Verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus says that true worshipers worship in spirit. Now, let me tell you what he's not talking about here. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. If he was talking about the Holy Spirit, it would say the Spirit. But that's not there. So this text is saying that it's worshiping in spirit. What he's talking about here is the idea of worshiping God from the very depth of who you are. From all of who you are. Your whole spirit. You are body. You're not just body though. Your body, your mind, your soul, your spirit. Jesus says true worshipers worship with everything that is in them. I read a a quote by a, a Puritan by the name of Stephen Charnock. Stephen Chernock, he said this. He said, without the heart, it is not worship. It's a stage play. An actor acting a part without being that person, really. A hypocrite. We may truly be said to worship God even though we lack perfection. But we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity. Sincerity. Amen. We must worship sincerely in spirit. In other words, a person can, they can raise their hands. They can sing from the top of their lungs. They can put money in an offering basket. They can give time to the poor. They can read their Bible every single day and still not worship. Why? Because all of those things can be done as purely an outward sign of, of, of drawing attention to yourself or an outward manifestation of something that's not even happening on the inside. What makes all of those things worship is when they're done by a worshiper, someone whose heart is sincere in that worship. In Matthew 15 verses 7 through 9, Jesus was addressing the religious leaders of his day, and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he says this, "'You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men.'" Ouch. It's just like what he said in Isaiah 1. Stop. I really believe that if, if our hearts aren't in it, if you're not here to worship God, if you're just going through the motions, and you come in here, and you sing songs, and you give offerings, and you do all those things, and your heart isn't in it, I really believe that God says, why don't you just stay home? Just stay home. It's not worship. I don't like it. I'm sick of it. That's what he said in Isaiah 1. I don't want it. Worship is something that starts in our hearts and then flows out through our lives. It starts in your heart and flows out through your life. It's not the other way around. The worship that God seeks, first and foremost, it cannot be limited to a specific location. It, it, it must be sincere. It, it must also be anchored in truth he says god is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth the worship that god seeks it has to be sincere but it also has to be in truth what does it mean to worship in truth it means that our worship needs to be based on what god has revealed about himself what has God revealed to be true about himself? That's what we respond to in worship. It's not enough to be sincere. Our sincere worship needs to be anchored in truth. He said in verse 22 You Samaritans worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans had rejected the entire Old Testament except for the first five books of the Bible. This left them with a very incomplete view of who God is and how he is to be worshipped. Jesus makes it clear that sincerity is only half of the equation. You must also worship him as he has uh, revealed himself to be. Those that worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. It's been really well said that every failure in worship can be traced back To a wrong thought about God. Every failure in worship can be traced back to wrong thoughts about God. And this, by the way, is why it is so important for us to have a sound biblical theology. We hate that word, don't we? Oh, it's almost as bad as history. Theology? Uh, We don't like words that end with O-G-Y, do we? You know, like it just sounds hard. What is theology? It's our beliefs about God anchored in the truth of who he has revealed himself to be in his word and in his creation. That's biblical theology. And if you have a theology that's not biblical, she said, it's not worship. You can't worship like, oh, I believe that Jell-O is worthy of worshiping. So I'm sincere in it. I bow down to Jell-O. Okay. Is God honored in that? No, because God isn't jello. Does that make sense? Your your worship of him needs to be anchored in what's true about him. And that's why, you know, people talk about Christians are so intolerant because we insist that God be worshipped in the way that he's revealed himself. You can't just take the pieces you like and get rid of the rest. You You don't You don't reject what He reveals about Himself in the Scripture. Look, we love the fact that God is loving, right? Not so much about the fact that He's so just. We like the God of of peace, but we don't like the God who has wrath. You can't worship Him apart from how He's revealed Himself to be. Worship Him in truth as He has revealed Himself to be. The worship that God sees can't be limited to a specific location. It must be sincere it must be anchored in the truth. And finally, the worship God seeks, is, it's what we were created for. Verse 23 says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father, what? Seeks. They're the type of worshipers the Father seeks. Jesus says that the Father is searching for worshipers. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit, sincerity, and truth in light of who He's revealed Himself to be. This whole encounter with the Samaritan woman, this John chapter 4, is proof that god is seeking worshipers why because i already told you that he could have gone around to the mediterranean to go north he could have gone over the jordan and gone up north jesus intentionally went north through samaria in fact if you look at verse four it says that jesus had to go through samaria what do you mean he had to go i just told you he could have gone around why did he have to go Because he was obedient to the will of his father. And his father was seeking a worshiper. God was seeking a worshiper. And that worshiper was a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and was currently living with a man that wasn't her husband. God is seeking worshipers. Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus is on his way from Galilee back down to Judea. And we read these words. Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. But what was he seeking them for? So that they could be spared from hell? It's part of it. He spared us from hell. Was he seeking us so he could make us happy? That's what this is all about. Jesus came seeking to make you all happy. If that's the case, then why would he say, you're going to face all kinds of trials and tribulations when you follow me? Yeah, that makes you happy. Jesus didn't come primarily to make you happy. Jesus didn't come primarily to give you joy. He didn't come primarily just so that you wouldn't go to a place called hell. Those are all benefits. It's wonderful. I'm so glad that in the midst of all those trials and tribulations, we can be happy and filled with joy. That's awesome. But that's not why he saved me. He saved me to worship him. You were saved to be a worshiper. That's what you were created and saved for. A.W. Tozer said this, We are saved to worship God. All that Christ has done for us in the past and all that he is doing now leads to this one end. Worship. The worship that God seeks cannot be limited to a specific location. It needs to be sincere. It needs to be anchored in truth. And we need to realize it's what we were created for. I'm going to call the praise team up. And we are going to go ahead and uh, we're going to close with a couple of songs. You guys can come right up. We're going to close with a couple of songs. But these songs, these songs are not worship. They're not. They're not worship unless you as a worshiper sing them as an act of worship. Does that make sense? We're going to leave here in a few minutes and you have a choice. You can say, that was a great worship service. Excellent worship. See you next week for worship. Or you can say, I'm a worshiper. I've been worshiping, and I'm going to keep worshiping. I'm going to let my life be a living sacrifice as a spiritual act of worship. Do you realize everything you do can be done in worship? And if it is, what are you doing it for? If, it, if, it's, if it's not, why are you doing it? If you can't do it as an act of worship, you shouldn't be doing it. Does that make sense? I think the only thing you can't do as an act of worship is sin. Everything else you can do will be worship. You can, honestly, you can brush your teeth as an act of worship. Everything you do can be an act of worship if you're doing it with a heart that's in praise to God. I've done it. I have had times where I'm like thanking God for the most mundane things that we take for granted every day. It's like, God, I'm so grateful for this. Thank you. I feel so blessed. And I know that every good and perfect gift comes from my Father above. I worship Him in those moments. We can worship God in every aspect of our lives. Final quote put up on the screen here. Worship is all that we are responding to. To all that God is. Look at that. Spirit and truth. Worship is all we are. All of us. are spirit. Worshiping in spirit. It's who we are. In response to all he is. That's the truth. Who God is as he's revealed himself to be. Worship is all we are. Responding to all that he is. Let's close. Let's stand together and listen.